Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Don't you can find a paperback Bible uh, underneath one of the chairs in front of you. <coughs> My name is Bob O'Bannon. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we'll be delivering the message today from the book of John. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1. And if you're looking at the paperback Bibles, that'll be on page 517. John 1. Um, What we've been doing here during the Advent Christmas season is going through a sermon series uh, on the incarnation, God with us, very appropriate for the Christmas season. And so this is the third part of the series Uh, The first part uh, a couple weeks ago was on the pre-existence of Christ. So we talked about how the Son of God is this eternal divine being, no beginning, not made, as we just recited from the Creed, the pre-existence of Christ. Last week, we talked about the virgin birth of Christ. So we have this pre-existent eternal Son who entered into our creation for our redemption, and the means by which He entered into our creation was the virgin birth. We talked about that last Sunday. Uh, Those sermons, again, are available at the website if you haven't been here and want to catch up. Uh, So what we have with these two truths, we have this eternal Son of God, preexistent, who then is born into this world in the form of a man. What we have is a Savior named Jesus who is divine and human. That's kind of the bottom line. We have a Savior who is both God and man. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to be talking about each of those. Today, thinking about the divinity of Christ. Next week, we'll talk about the humanity of Christ. So the divinity of Christ, or the deity, divinity, deity, but words mean basically the same thing. Divinity of Christ. Um, Very, 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 very important thing for us to understand. And in fact, there's a guy named Walter Martin who wrote this many years ago. The deity or divinity of Christ is one of the cornerstones of Christianity and as such has been attacked more vigorously throughout the ages than any other single doctrine of the Christian faith. Why would the divinity or the deity of Christ come under such persistent and vigorous attack. Why would that be? And I think the answer is just simply this, because if the divinity of Christ is true, what that would mean is that Jesus is the one with the greatest authority in all the universe. It would mean that the one that you need in your life more than anyone else, the thing you need in your life more than anything else, is Jesus. It would mean that the only one worthy of your worship and your service and your full devotion would be Jesus. It would mean that the only one in whom you can find salvation and forgiveness of your sins would be Jesus. And it would mean that the one to whom you will one day have to give an account for everything you've said and done and thought in your life is Jesus. If Jesus is divine, that's who we're talking about. The stakes are high. And so you can see how people don't like to think of Jesus in that way. 
We tend to want to be our own authority, and we don't like to think that there is somebody that has such an authority as this Jesus. But that is what the Scriptures teach us and what we're going to be thinking about this morning. <clears throat> this text here from John chapter 1, um, we're just going to be looking at a few verses here. Uh, this is the richest, I think, and deepest and most profound passage in Scripture regarding the importance of the divinity of Christ. Uh, it's kind of peculiar. It's a little bit mysterious. And so we're going to have to think through some uh, careful nuances here to see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us through this passage. So if you're able to stand, please do that. And let me read here from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to skip down and just read verse 14. <clears throat> John 1, 1 through 5, and then verse 14. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes and hearts and minds to behold the wonderful truths of your Word and this glorious doctrine of the Incarnation, God with us. Help us as we consider these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <coughs> so... <clears throat> As I read that passage, you will notice that there is uh, a word that shows up here repeatedly, and it's the word word. Word. Uh, maybe you remember years ago, if you were old enough uh, to be alive during President Clinton's uh, presidency, he was accused of some things, and his answer to the accusations was in part, it depends on what the word is is. Do you remember that? And he got made fun of and criticized for that. It depends on what the word is, is. In this case, this morning, what we're going to learn depends on what the word, word, is. This really is going to be a sermon focused basically on one word. A one-word sermon, this word, word. This is central to what John is talking to us about, and so we need to think carefully about what this word is that he is talking about, the word that was with God and was God. And so let's think of this in three ways uh, this morning. The first thing I want to show you is that this word <clears throat> is eternal. The word is eternal. So you look at the passage here, it says, In the beginning was the word. Uh, that that short little verb there, was, actually is a word in a verb tense that means continuous or ongoing. The way to translate this is not in the beginning the word came to be or the word came into existence. That word was means that the word always existed, had continuous existence. 
Um, and in fact, we see John elaborate on this a little more. Verse 3, all things were made through Him. This again is the pre-existent Word through whom the universe was created. No beginning, the Word who is not made. And the, the, the Greek word here, however, that is used for this word is a very important word. And we're going to be unpacking this, this word here um, <clears throat> this morning. The, the word in the Greek is uh, the, the logos. In the Greek it says logos, and it's translated as word. And John, writing this gospel, is being extremely strategic in using this word logos. He's being very intentional because... As John is writing this gospel, he knows that his readers are basically broken down into two groups. There are Jews who are going to be reading this, but there are also Gentiles or, or Greeks who are going to be reading this book of, of his, and he wants to reach them both. And so he's using a particular word that's going to ring a bell in both of their minds. And so if we think of Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, basically what we're talking about um, are, for instance, the, the Jews, they would be considered more the God-fearing, kind of religious people of John's day. Uh, but the Greeks, the Gentiles, would be considered more the um, non-religious, the, the pagan group of his day. So what John is trying to do, he's trying to reach, to use more modern language, the, the churched and the unchurched. He's trying to reach the religious and the non-religious and so he's finding this, this word, this very strategic word, that is going to reach both of these groups. So that word is, is, is logos. So what does the word logos mean to the Greeks? The typical Greek reading this passage, beginning was the word, the beginning was, was the, the logos, the, the way your typical Greek person would understand that word is that they would see that what John is referring to is this, you know, this is kind of abstract, but that they would understand that what John is talking about is this kind of rational principle that is underlying all of reality, the whole universe being held together by this supreme, logical, thoughtful reality. That's the way the Greeks thought upholding all of reality, the whole universe is held together by this kind of intellect or this kind of logic, or you could even call it a kind of a science, and that this is what makes all things in the universe meaningful and intelligible. In other words, the Greeks and, and the, the, the Gentiles did not think of the universe as an absurd, irrational, meaningless place. Now, in our day and age, we know that there are a lot of philosophers who think of reality that way. There is no meaning to life. Everything is random and accidental, and we just make up our own meaning about reality. But that's not what the Greeks thought. And the reason they didn't think that is because of their belief in this thing called the logos, translated here in this passage as word. So, in other words, th this is really important for understanding how the world works. Uh, it, this is what allows there to be scientific laws, for instance, that are going to remain steady and stable. 
throughout all time. Uh, this is what allows us to say that 2 plus 2 is 4, no matter what time you happen to live in and no matter what country you happen to live in. It is a scientific law that continues. This is why water boils at a certain temperature. It's not fluctuating. It's steady. It's stable. Uh, this is why we can count on the fact that there is an absolute morality, that what is right and wrong is not dependent on our personal preference or popular opinion, but it's something that is ongoing, embedded in the universe. And so, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about a Christian view of mathematics, but there actually is a, a proper way, biblically speaking, to consider the, the laws of, of math. Um, this guy named Gavin Ortland says this, Numbers have traditionally been understood as the ideas or thoughts of God. Thus, the reason that mathematical truths are eternal and necessary is that they are sustained by an eternal mind. Hope you don't mind me quoting a, a Catholic today. Pope Benedict, though, says, says this, The mathematics of the universe does not exist by itself. It has a deeper foundation, the mind of the Creator. It comes from the Logos, in whom, so to speak, the archetypes of the world's order are contained. This Logos, the rational principle by which the world is made coherent, understandable, and meaningful. It's all wrapped up in this one little word, logos. So, John is using this word because this is what the typical Greek is going to understand, uh, that embedded in the universe is this meaning. If you think like the difference between an architect and an archaeologist, right? An architect is one who designs something from the ground up, creates something, designs it and builds it himself or herself. But an archaeologist simply discovers what is already there. And when we come to scientific laws, the laws of mathematics, the laws of morality, these are things where we're discovering what is already there embedded in the Logos. So that, that's what the Greeks would get with the use of this word in John 1.1. But what about the Jews, though? So I mentioned there are two audiences that John is anticipating, not just the Greeks, but but the Jews, the, the religious people of his day, those in the covenant community, the God-fearing people, John wants to reach them too. And so you can see how this verse begins, in the beginning. <clears throat> you are uh, people familiar with the Bible. Does that ring a bell at all, that phrase, in the beginning? Where else have you heard that phrase? Genesis 1-1, right? Any Jew reading this book of John is going to immediately go back to the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So for the, the typical Jewish person reading this passage, they're going to see Logos and they're going to think, okay, this is referring to um, the, the speech, the, the voice of God. The communication of God, God's voice or speech going forth to create the universe. Remember in Genesis 1, how God creates? It says He, he speaks. He speaks things into existence, and this is what Psalm 33 tells us. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The word. That's what we're talking about this morning, right? By the word, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded 
and it stood firm. The God of the Hebrew Bible is one who creates through the power of His Word. <clears throat> and incidentally, when you think about that, when we read the Bible and you hear the Bible preached, it is the same Word that went forth out of God's mouth to create the universe. Do you understand how powerful God's Word is? That's what we're hearing from today. The same power that created all things. So the Jew reading this book is going to say, ah, yeah, I, I, I understand the logos. Yeah, the word, the word by which God created all things. And the Greek is going to hear this and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. The rational principle that upholds all the universe. And so what John is trying to do here is reach both these groups. And what John is telling us here is that it was in the beginning was this word. The Word was eternal. The Word never had a beginning. It never had a starting point. It wasn't made. It's an ongoing, continuous reality. And what that means is it transcends all distinctions and all boundaries. It transcends all distinctions of time, all distinctions of race, all distinctions of location, all distinctions of culture. It's relevant to every person in every time in every age and in every place, and that means it's relevant to you. This Logos is one that, that you have to come to grips with. This is not a concept that is just for Jews. It is not just for ancient people. It's for modern people. It is not just for those on the Western Hemisphere, but for those in the Eastern Hemisphere as also. It's for atheists, it's for Muslims, it's for men, it's for women, it's for liberals, it's for conservatives. Everybody comes under the authority of this Logos. That's why John is using this word to reach both the Jews and the Greeks. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's a Gentile thing as well. So there's something extraordinary here to consider about this word. It's, it's, it's eternal. The word is eternal. But now we get this second thing. The word is distinct from God. The word is distinct from God. Okay, we're going to think again in, in a kind of a nuanced way here about what this is saying. So it's not saying that the word is not God. That's not what I'm saying. Hang on, we'll get to that in the third point. But the word is distinct from God. There is a distinction between these two entities, Word and God. Look back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is eternal and preexistent, and yet the Word is with God, alongside God. That, that word with can also mean toward. The Word was toward God, facing God implying that there's like a personal relationship that exists between the Word and God. And so what we're seeing here is a, a glimpse into the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Very essential doctrine for us to understand. The Trinity, which tells us that there is one God who exists as three distinct persons. So when the passage here refers to God, we can understand that as being God the Father. When we see the reference to the Word, we can think of that as God the Son. And then we also have God the Spirit, who is not really talked about here in this passage, but is 
talked about in many other places in the New Testament and, well, in the whole Bible, but for instance, in the New Testament, we see these three persons brought together in Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And notice uh, the, uh, the word name there is not plural, is it? It's not the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the name, the singular name of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. Another uh, example of this, 1 Peter 1, 2. Peter talks uh, about uh, something here that's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word. One God, three persons. Now, let me pause here to make sure that you understand that what I'm talking about here and what I'm going to continue to talk about through the rest of this sermon, as I said, I think a couple weeks ago, these are not things that are unique to Presbyterians. These are not the peculiar things of, of Reformed Presbyterian people. You know, I'm not trying to just get you to come into some doctrine here that belongs to us and nobody else. This is just basic Christianity. That's what I'm talking about here. This is what all Christians believe and have believed throughout the centuries, whether Pentecostal or Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. This is something all Christians, if you're a Christian, you should have some understanding of this. If this is brand new to you, you've got work to do. These are the, 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 I'm not saying they're easy to understand, but they're commonly held. As Brian was mentioned earlier with the Nicene Creed, we're giving expression to what we have in common with all Christians. And what we're doing here today is going into a little more depth about what we recite in the Nicene Creed. So, so we're talking about the Trinity here. The, the Word was, was with God. You see that in verse 1. The Word is with God. So... To be clear, what we're not saying is, we're not talking about three gods when we talk about the Trinity. I mean, that, that's, that's the hard thing to understand. We're talking about three divine persons, but we're not talking about three gods. And we're also not talking about one God who, like, morphs or transforms into different persons. We're not saying that the Father existed for a while and then He became the Son and now He has become the Spirit. So there's one God wearing different masks, for instance. That's not what we're saying. That's a heresy. It's called modalism. You see, we can't hold to that because what the verse is telling us is that the Word was with God. The Word and God were simultaneous for all eternity. They didn't morph from one to another. They both have existed. They're both eternal. But the Word is distinct from God. But, but here is what is perhaps most remarkable about this passage we're looking at today. And, and that is that this, this logos, this eternal, supreme rationality that upholds the coherence of the universe the one through whom all things were made, became a first century Jewish carpenter in the history, time-space history of, of our world. It became a man. Not, not, 
He didn't come in some way to represent humanity. He became a specific individual man named Jesus of Nazareth about 2,000 years ago and lived on our earth. Go down to verse 14. That's what this is saying. And the Word, the Logos, the supreme rationality, the one through whom all things were made, became flesh, that is, He took on a body in the virgin birth. We learned that last week. And dwelt among us walked on our earth, walked on this planet, had parents, went to school, ate and slept, worked as a carpenter, made a living, had friends, went to weddings, lived on this earth. It's an astonishing thing that this creator God would become a man. And it goes on to say that We have now seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. You know, I hear people say very often, kind of unbelievers and skeptics, you know, they say, you know, if if God would just show Himself to me, I'd believe Him. I'd believe that He existed. Why doesn't He just come down and just say, hey, here I am, I'm God? Well, that's exactly what He did. He has done that. He did that when Jesus was born of a virgin, became flesh, and dwelt among us. You want to know who God is? Look at who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who reveals God to us in the flesh. And so uh, we can't say that God has not revealed himself to us because he has. Now, what, one other thing that, that I, I like to point out here, um, notice who it is who is becoming flesh. It, it's the Word It's not God the Father becoming flesh. So we really shouldn't say God the Father was born in a manger to a virgin. We don't say that. It's God the Son. It's the Word. There's a specific person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, who added a human nature and came into our existence. And so that's important because when we think of what Jesus did for us dying on the cross, we don't say that God the Father died. We don't say that God Himself ceased to exist because He died on the cross. No, it's the human nature added to the second person of the Trinity who died, who was given up for our salvation. So a guy named Stephen Wellam, theologian, says, As God the Son, He remains what He has always been in relation to the Father and the Spirit. But now the word Son has assumed a human nature to reveal the divine glory and achieve our redemption. That, that's just such a, a good summary of what I'm trying to say here <laughs> this morning. I know, again, there are nuances here. There are fine distinctions made. Uh, but it's important for us to think through the revelation that God has given to us in His Scriptures. Now, if I could just kind of break it down to the most personal way possible here, I, I would just say this. Because... Because the Word is distinct from God, and because the Word is a person, the Word is one who has come into our existence in the form of a first century man, because He's a personal being, what that means is that you and I can know Him and have relationship with Him. We're not just talking about some abstract principle out there in the universe somewhere. We're not talking about a mere mathematical equation How do you have a relationship with 2 plus 2 is (laughs) 4? 
you can't. But that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying this pre-existent word is one who has come into our being as one that you can know, one you can love, one who you know, you can know loves you, one you can talk to in prayer, one who talks to you through His Word, one who, who walks with you through all the trouble and difficulty and challenges of your life, one who is always there, a friend, a companion. That, that's what John is teaching us here. And in fact, he says this in John 1.13, He came to His own, His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave right to become the children of God. That's how you have relationship with this preexistent, eternal Word become flesh through faith, putting your faith in Him. It's not by trying to be good enough for Him. It's not by trying to be a moral person or a religious person. It's not trying to get His attention by all your good deeds and all your good works and all your good intentions. No, by faith, trusting in this One who has entered into our creation for our redemption. So one last thing to consider. The Word is eternal. The Word is distinct from God because of what it says in verse 1. The Word was with God, toward God, distinct. But at the same time, we're also saying the Word is God. <laughs> so that's clear, I think, here from verse 1. The Logos, the supreme rationality, the one through whom all things were made, he became a man in Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin. And yet even though this word is distinct from God, look at verse 1, the word was with God and the word was God. The word was God. The word has taken on human flesh to become this man Jesus. So what we say is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is distinct from God and yet still God Himself. The Scriptures are teaching us that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. And that His humanity does not decrease His divinity. His divinity does not decrease His humanity. We can get into that more next week. But this is absolutely fundamental for you to understand. Jesus is God. If somebody were to ask you, Christian, can you show me in the Scriptures proof that Jesus is God? When the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, the Mormon that you meet out at Concanons, whatever, and, and start getting into discussion, do, do, you know, do you know where to go? How are you going to show that Jesus is God? Does the Scriptures te teach that or not? Could you make a case for it? Because this is not something that everybody agrees with, friends. Like I quoted Walter Martin at the beginning. He said the divinity of Christ is the doctrine that's under attack more than anything else. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe this. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was a God, like a junior God, but not the almighty eternal God. If you talk to a Muslim, they're offended by any suggestion that Jesus could be linked with God, to them, it's blasphemy to say that Jesus is God. Talk to a Buddhist, yeah, they might say, okay, Jesus is uh, yeah, a, a, you know, a, a respected spiritual master. They might give him credit to that degree, but they're not going to call him God. 
The Mormons think that Jesus was just a mere man, and then, but he progressed and achieved divinity eventually. And if you're as good as him, you can achieve divinity also. Good luck with that. Not that he was an eternal God, but he progressed to deity. Marxists don't believe that Jesus was God because they don't believe that there's any God at all. The New Age movement might say that Jesus is God, but He's only God insofar that we're all God. There's a divine spark in all of us, and Jesus just got there a little quicker than the rest of us. Modern liberalism will deny that Jesus is God and say that He's merely a good example, but not God in the flesh as what is being taught here in John This is what all these people say about the divinity of Christ. This is all their explanation, all the way they nuance it, the way they talk about it. What do you say about it? Is Jesus God or not? And there's a passage in John 8 where where, uh, Jesus says, Unless you believe I am who I say I am, you will die in your sins. Content about what you believe about Jesus is, is important. It is important. Last week, I, I made this mention. I don't want you to think, oh, i got to understand all these details to become a Christian. You know, I, I don't want you to think that way. I mean, maybe this is all brand new to you, but what you know is that you're a sinful person, and you know you need to be saved, and, and you believe that Jesus did come and died on a cross to forgive your sins and has risen from the dead. This all stuff, I, you know, it's brand new to you. you. You don't know. I mean, if that's where you're at right now, I think I want to become a Christian. I need to be saved. My sins are held to my account. I want to be freed from them, and I think Jesus is the one. Amen. Believe in Jesus and be saved today, right now. You don't have to slice and dice all of this with great accuracy to be a Christian. But there is a revelation of Scripture given to us, and it is a dangerous thing to reject what God has revealed. And all these groups that I've been talking about, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Buddhists, Mormons, etc., that they're rejecting God's revealed content about who God is, and that's, that's a serious thing. That's a dangerous thing. So, so where would you go? Where would you go to show that Jesus is God? I mean, this text is a good one, but you know, there are many others. Here's Romans 9, to Israel belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. About Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. About 1 John 5, 20, we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John 20 This is doubting Thomas. Jesus says to Thomas, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus says, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side, don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And that should be your response and my response to what we're learning here today. When you come before Jesus, this is the appropriate response, my Lord and my God. I worship you. I give myself to you. And then one last passage from the Old Testament, classic Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God.
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, if this is true, if what I'm saying is true, that Jesus Christ is God, you have got to reckon with that. This is not something you can ignore. This is not something you can sweep aside. This is something that demands a response from you. Will you trust Him? Will you put your faith in Him? Will you take Him as your Savior and your God? This is not a Jesus who's a mere teacher. This is a Jesus who is a Savior. This is not a Jesus who is an example for you to follow. Not an example of your faith necessarily, but a Jesus who is the object of your faith. And on the cross, what we see in Jesus' work is not some courageous, inspiring martyr's death, although that might be partially what is going on. More specifically, what we have is a sacrifice worthy to cover all the sins of every single person who puts faith in Him. And that's what we're going to talk about more as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. So let's pray and prepare our hearts for that. Father, um, Your Word is sometimes mysterious, but we believe your word is truth. And so we thank you, eternal preexistent word that you took on humanity to save us, that in love you came to pursue us, and that you laid down your life to save us, and that the blood shed on the cross is sufficient to forgive us. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to know more about your word. Prepare us now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.